Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm grateful that you would join us on this Palm Sunday. I do need to make a, a few brief notes uh, as we get rolling here. Uh, typically, during our service, uh, pre-COVID times, this is when we would take of our tithes and offerings. Uh, you remember that time when we would be in crowds and we would touch people's hands and we weren't worried about germs? If you're not familiar with those times, those are the old days, as we say. But during this time, we would typically take of our tithes and offerings, and you are still able to give as the Lord may lead you. You can give online at homesavenue.com forward slash give. You can also give uh, to our ushers who will be standing at the back as you exit. Uh, as we move into our important things today, though, as we begin to wrestle with what God is doing, we're taking a break from Leviticus uh, to begin to wrestle with this idea of Holy Week. Uh, today is Palm Sunday, and as we're beginning to look at the scriptures, this is really the, the beginning of the end of Jesus' life. As we're looking at this passage today in Luke, we're going to see Jesus begin with this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And as we read this story 2,000 years later, we then see the end of this story where Jesus is crucified upon the cross on Good Friday. And we then see him rise again the following Sunday. And we know how this story ends. This story ends with sin and death trampled, with Jesus leaving the tomb empty but leaving our sin and shame behind. But on this day on Palm Sunday, we have a day of celebration we have a day of inauguration. We have a day of rejoicing because the heavenly king has come to earth. And so if you would, would you stand and read God, God's word with me as we look at Luke chapter 19, beginning of verse 28. The word of the Lord reads, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would you, that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you and your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon one another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. If you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, as we are celebrating this holy week and the beginning of the end of Jesus' life and ministry amongst us. May we be captured by the beauty and power of the gospel. May we recognize that in this moment, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, 
in his last week of life. That he comes fully aware of what he would go to bear. That he would be beaten and mocked and scorned. That he would go to the cross, an innocent man, to be pierced for our transgressions. Yet through his chastisement, we are made whole. Lord, may we be captivated by the fact that Jesus bore the very weight of our sin and shame and took our place so that we may have life eternal. Father, we are thankful for the grace that you've shown us. And we pray that this Palm Sunday, as we go into this holiest of weeks, Lord, that we will be captivated by the beauty and majesty of a gospel that would say there is a way to eternal life. And the way to our eternal life is through a resurrected Savior. Father, thank you for all that you've done. But most importantly, thank you for the cross, Father. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So you guys may be seated. So if you're here and we're in the middle of Palm Sunday, you might be asking this question, what is Palm Sunday, right? It's a good question. This is a day in the church year when we traditionally mark the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem for the last week of his life. If you're not familiar with this last week, we refer to it as Holy Week. And this is a week where we see throughout Scripture Jesus doing some things in the midst of Jerusalem. You might remember last year we did a series of videos uh, that you could watch online. Uh, These videos were just capturing some of these high moments in the life of Jesus during his final week. We're actually going to do that again this year, but we've got a special treat for you. You're not just going to have Pastor Brian and I standing up there talking with you. We've actually partnered together with six other churches here in the community that will be putting on these videos before our Good Friday service. These same churches will be represented in the Good Friday service. But during this Holy Week video, you'll have opportunity to simply hear what Jesus was experiencing and doing in the midst of his final week that you'll be able to just celebrate and rejoice in all that God has done during this week, building up to Good Friday and, of course, Easter. Now, as you're hearing this idea of Palm Sunday, you go, okay, great, so this is a very specific day in the life of the church. What do palms have to do with this, right? Well, palms were used as a royal greeting for kings. Uh, We see here in the scriptures that palms are used. They're greeting their Messiah, their king that is coming into Jerusalem. And so hence, we call it Palm Sunday. Now, Palm Sunday is an event that gives us both great insight, yet great misunderstanding in the life of Jesus. You see, our great insight into this comes through the fact that Jesus really is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That he's the Messiah. He's the son of David. He's the long-awaited ruler of Israel. The fulfillment of all of God's promises. He is here. He is coming into Jerusalem. And this is a moment of celebration. Yet we see great misunderstanding occur here. Because as he enters into Jerusalem, and the people who are gathered would believe that he's going to come into Jerusalem, and by his mighty works, he's going to take the throne and make Israel free from the oppression of Rome. You see, the Jewish people who have gathered, they see him as the Messiah. But they fail to recognize that his role of the Messiah is not to come as a military or political leader, but he's to come as a spiritual Messiah. That he is one who has come to save our souls. You see, he was the Messiah, but he didn't fit the role of the Messiah that the people of Israel had for him. 
You see, the people that have gathered have missed the fact that he promised he would take his throne and he would fulfill that promise, yet it would only come through his suffering, death, and resurrection. You see, this is what Peter refers to in Acts chapter 2, verses 32 and 33. It reads, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You see, Palm Sunday is a day that brings insight and misunderstanding. It's a day that brings joy and pain, brings life and death. It's full of foreshadowing and hope. And it's into this that Jesus steps into the story. You see, Jesus knew all of this, and he still willingly came into the holy city. There's much that happens in this passage, but we're going to focus in on Jesus' response to the people as he entered into the city today. You probably surmised that as we saw the title, Tears of Mercy. We're focusing in on the Messiah's response to his people. You see, our first point, the first section we're going to look at is the sovereign mercy of the king. Look back with me at verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. We're going to look at the sovereign mercy of the king today. I want to define some terms there and make sure we understand what we're looking at. The first term I think we need to define is sovereign. And it's not a word we use typically in our day-to-day life. But this is referring to the power or authority of a ruler, that which is given to one who has charge and control. That is King Jesus. A king is sovereign in his domain, and every square inch of the universe is the domain of Christ. We also see mercy there. You see, mercy refers to an act that is perhaps undeserved, an act that is unexpected, relief from pain, suffering, difficulty, hardship. You see, in this moment, we see the sovereign mercy of the king being displayed. That that is, the king is offering something that only he is able to offer, mercy. And so we're introduced in this story to Jesus coming down the road to Jerusalem, and he's met with a crowd. You see, just as we celebrate this holy week, the final week of Jesus, the Jewish people celebrated a holy week as well. This is the week of Passover for them. Remembering the story in Exodus where the angel of death came to set his people free. That God sent this angel and that he would pass over those that had the blood of the lamb upon their threshold. And it was this final plague, if you will, that came into the the city of Egypt that allowed the people of God to go free. Now, they've gathered together to celebrate this Passover. And we've seen through historical work that millions of Jewish people would gather together for this. 
It's estimated that in this time of Jesus, from archaeological evidence we have, that over two and a half million people have gathered in and around the city to celebrate the Passover week. And we see these multitudes begin to flock out on the road to see and to celebrate this Jesus who's coming. Now in the midst of this, we have to recognize that Jesus is pretty famous at this point. He's got the verified check on his social media accounts that he's well known in this time. Some of the things that he's done is he's just performed many miracles, things of healings, exercising demons. He's raised people from the dead multiple times. In fact, we're just coming off the story of him raising Lazarus from the dead as he gets ready to go into Jerusalem. He's taught with authority, unlike any other teacher they've seen. He has an understanding of the scriptures that no rabbi possesses. He cared for the lowest of the low, those that society says you must stay away from. The unclean, the lepers, the sinners, those are the ones that he has come to minister to. You see, for better or worse, everybody knows or they think they know who this Jesus is. You see, more important than these things, these these pictures that people are putting up saying, this is who Jesus is. He was sovereign. He is sovereign. He is the supreme ruler of the universe. He does not come into this city waiting to be crowned king. He is the king. You see, Jesus comes in and we, we fail to grasp the weight of his power. That he comes into the city... And he could just speak a few words and Pontius Pilate, the man who would allow him to be crucified, would perish. He could say a few words and the Roman armies would be scattered and torn apart. That even as he hangs upon the cross in just a few short days, that he could simply cry out to the heavenly host and be lifted off this weight of suffering that he would bear. Yet in this midst of being sovereign and in control, of being the supreme ruler, he chooses to submit to his destiny. Now the crowd here is caught up in this moment because they begin to cry out to Jesus as they would a king. That's what we see in verse 38 when they say, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, verse 38 is an adaptation of Psalm 118.26. This is something that's chanted at the end of the Passover supper and at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the entirety of Psalm 118 is used and is about remembering and worshiping the heavenly king for what has been done. It's used in this instance as a beatitude to the king as he approaches the temple in Holy Week. So in the midst of their worship, they would use this to proclaim these words, the king is coming, the king is here. And they would use that for their earthly king. Yet in this moment, the crowd is clear that they think that Jesus is the coming king, the coming Messiah who's come to set them free. You see, John 12, 13 tells us, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. You see, these moments are not occurring by accident. You see, they're using these palms to represent their desire to be delivered. That's a symbol for the Israelite people. 
that these palms represent that they are going to be set free one day. Now, this isn't a spiritual freedom. This is a nationalistic desire that they want their nation, their people to be set free from Roman tyranny, from the judgment of those that they would view as unclean. That's why they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna. What they are saying is, save us, Lord. Save us from this tyranny and this oppression. You see, most who have gathered think of Jesus as an earthly Messiah. They think he's going to set Israel free from Rome and that he's going to lead them to preeminence among the nations of the known world. They think that we're finally going to be the people that God intended us to be. We'll be free of the Romans. We'll be the one, the nation that everyone looks to and bows down to. We will be all that God has intended us to be. Yet they view him primarily as a physical savior from their current oppression. You see, they believe that peace is coming because the Messiah is here. Yet they are blind to the true meaning of peace. You see, Jesus was a king. And he's not just any king. But he was the one that was sent and appointed by the Lord God. You see, Isaiah 9, 7 tells us, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. All of this pomp and circumstance is happening as Jesus comes up the path to Jerusalem. You see, John Piper writes that we would see a universal, never-ending kingdom backed by the zeal of the Almighty God. This was being established. Here is the king of the universe who today rules over the nations and galaxies and for whom America and Iraq and all the other nations you could imagine are a grain of sand and vapor. You see, the Israelite people see the king coming, yet they fail to see that the king is coming. So in the midst of this pomp and circumstance, there's so much that is happening here. The Pharisees see this and they object to this behavior. We don't know why the Pharisees tell Jesus to tell his disciples to calm down. But they object to it. And Jesus responds in verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent referring to his disciples, the very stones would cry out. It's best understood as if the disciples were to stop in their praising of God and his son, then the stones would take their place and cry out in praise instead. You see, the whole design of the universe is that Christ would be praised. If people won't do it, even the rocks will. You see, he is sovereign. He will get what he desires to get. And what he desires to do here is to pour out his mercy and nothing, nothing will stop in his path. Nothing will take away from this day. There is no silencing the welcome of Israel's deliverer. The power of man and the Pharisees pales in comparison to the power of God. It's like trying to stop a raging river with a newspaper. Nothing will prevent God from displaying and pouring out his sovereign mercy upon his people. 
Now that sets the stage for us to understand that he's coming not as a meek and mild savior, but as a reigning king. And as he steps forth into this, we now see the mercy of the king in action. Verse 41 reads, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon one another in you because you didn't know the time of your visitation. You see, as Jesus continues down this path to Jerusalem, there's a dip in the road. It takes you down into a valley. And as he dips down into this valley, when you come up on the opposite ridge, you have a full view of the holy city before you. You see, when Jesus goes into this valley and steps up on this ridge riding this colt, he stops and weeps. He stops and weeps over his city and his people. You see, Jesus looks out upon this city, this holy place, and he knows what is going to happen in the next week. He knows that the Pharisees will get the upper hand. That even now, Judas is planning, plotting to betray him. The people, even his closest followers like Peter, will show their fickleness and follow their leaders and reject him. You see, Jesus will end this week being rejected and crucified. Jesus came to redeem his people and they rejected him. Yet Jesus, in his sovereignty, saw every bit of this coming. He saw every moment, every betrayal. He felt every lash long before he took earthly flesh. And he willingly chose to descend. Now, how did Jesus respond to this? How did he respond to looking over this holy city where he knows that he is going to experience abandonment, betrayal, devastation beyond all imagining? He weeps. He weeps over this broken and lost people. He weeps and proclaims verses 41 and 42. He weeps and mourns that they would reject him, the promised cornerstone. He weeps and mourns because he knows that in rejecting him, they are setting their eternal trajectory towards hell and separation from him. He knows that what they are losing is the full satisfaction that comes with the gospel. You see, he weeps over the blindness and impending misery of Jerusalem. He references uh, Jerusalem being torn down. That we know that just a few years later, Jerusalem is actually torn down by the Roman Empire. They leave three towers set up in the city of Jerusalem. And they do this not because they couldn't tear them down, not because they felt sorry, but they wanted all of the people of the Middle East to look upon Jerusalem and shudder. They wanted everyone to see the might of the Roman Empire. That we are so mighty, we are going to leave just a few towers here to mock the Jewish people. That we will garrison an army here and that we will defile their holy land, their holy place. 
that the people would desire to come worship here, and we will not leave even a stone established. The Roman general Titus, we see from uh, Josephus' historian, enters into the city after devastating the city, tearing everything down, stands in the, what was the temple mount and lifts his hands and cries out to God, this was not my doing, your people made me do this. Jesus sees every bit of that coming. That he knows the weight, the devastation that he's going to bear personally. But he sees the pain and sorrow that his people will bear. And he weeps. He mourns. Some would argue that verse 41 is a sign that that God's not in control. That he doesn't know what's going on. That he has no ability to influence events. They'll point to him weeping and they'll say that his will for his people is not coming to pass. They're going to reject him and crucify. His purpose has failed. Yet what a short-sighted objection. You see, Jesus, being fully man and fully human, weeps and mourns because he knows that he can make praise come from rocks and his desire is that he'll do the same in rock-hard hearts in Jerusalem. That he will take those dead hearts and bring them to life through his act of sacrificing himself. You see, this rejection and this persecution is not the failing of God's plan, but rather it is the fulfillment of it. Just a few short verses before this, in Luke 18, Jesus says this to his disciples. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. You see, none of this is a surprise to Jesus. You see, he openly, clearly proclaims his coming death, burial, and resurrection to his disciples. And then knowing that his end is near, he willingly chooses to go forth to pay for the debt of our sin and shame on the cross. And as if that's not enough, he weeps and mourns for the very people that would go forth to crucify him. You see, this is mercy that you and I can't even fathom. That we have a hard enough time forgiving people who have cut us off in traffic. Yet Jesus is here weeping and mourning over the very people who are going to kill him. You see, Jesus' mercy is on full display for you and I right now. You see, we recognize that he's moved in these verses. He feels the sorrow of this situation. Yes, there is a deep inner peace that God is in control. We recognize that because we see him just a few short days from now in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays, God, if there is any other way, would you take this cup from me? But he prays that with confidence and submission to the Father saying, I know there's no other way. So let me bear this cup and bear it well. Yes, there's that deep inner peace that God is in control. But even though you have that confidence and assurance as Jesus does, it doesn't mean that you can't cry. 
and weep and mourn with those who mourn. Perhaps this is a signal for us that we should pray for tears. You see, there is so much pain that is in this world. There's so much suffering that is both near and far from us. Yet Jesus was not too busy to be moved to tears by the condition of the world. Jesus, knowing that he has come in a few short days to die upon the cross, stops and weeps and mourns for the spiritual condition, for the pain and sorrow of those that are about to crucify and reject him. He felt enough compassion for the people of Jerusalem to weep. I would submit to you that if we haven't shed any tears for losses beyond ours, it probably means that we're not truly embracing the mercy of Jesus. That we are not recognizing that Jesus has come and he looked beyond himself and mourned for those that were lost. He mourned for those that were suffering. He mourned for those that would condemn him. You see, Jesus' mercy is on full display because he is moved in these verses. We also recognize that as he's standing on this hill looking down into the city, that he willingly chooses to take up his cross as well. That he literally embraces that self-denial. No, we haven't jumped ahead to where he literally does carry his cross up the hill that he is crucified on. But we see Jesus choosing to die to himself. You see, this text is a part of a story of Jesus moving intentionally towards suffering and death. That as he sits on this ridge and looks down upon this city, he recognizes that he's entering Jerusalem to die. Remember what we looked at in Luke, right? He's clearly prophesied he's going to come to die. And as he sits upon that ridge, he looks out on this city that will reject him and proclaims that he's willing to go die for it. See, this is precisely what Jesus meant back in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. You see, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would lose his, who save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, this is the meaning of self-denial. This is precisely what Jesus wanted to put on display for us in Matthew 16. That we would willingly choose to follow Jesus by giving up the things we desire, the things we long for, the things that we hope to get in this life, all for the sake of having Jesus and Jesus alone. You see, when Jesus weeps upon that ridge, he weeps because he knows that there are people in this city who are choosing to reject all that is found in him. That he weeps because he looks 2,000 years into the future and sees that there are people here today, here in this city, who will choose to reject him. He weeps because he knows there is a better life than what they are living. And it all begins and ends with the cross of Jesus. You see, Jesus looked out and he recognizes that there's a need here. There's a need 
And he moves towards that need. He chooses to go off this ridge into the city. That he climbs down this ridge into the city where he is destined to die. You see, he saw the sin of the world. He knew it would cost him greatly. But it moved him so greatly that he he chose to come to this earth so that some might be spared the misery of hell and receive the gift of eternal life. You see, we recognize that we're to deny ourselves comfort and the securities and the ease of avoiding pain. We recognize that our lives are nothing but blank checks on the table. That we've signed it and put it down before the Lord and said, Where you send me, where you take me, I will go. You see, Jesus calls us to embrace this self-denial. You see, his tears were not just a display of mercy, but they were tears of a man who was on his way to fulfill man's greatest need, that of a Savior. Finally, as we look at this passage, we recognize something about mercy. We recognize something about the mercy of the king. You see, mercy helps. Mercy helps. You see, mercy isn't content with just feeling things. It isn't content with just denying yourself these pleasures and privileges of this world. You see, mercy actually does something that helps people. Jesus was dying in our place so that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. Jesus willingly chose to come to this earth to descend upon mankind. To bear the weight of our sin and shame so that we might take his place before God. That is that his righteousness could be given to those who would repent of their sins. Who would trust him so that we could dwell before God for all eternity. You see, Jesus wasn't content to merely sit in heaven at the right hand of the Father and say thoughts and prayers. I'm thinking about you people. But he put thoughts and prayers, word and deed into action. That before the foundations of the earth, he knew Adam and Eve would sin in the garden. He knew that the creation would go astray. He knew that we would fail and there would need to be a redeemer. As if that's not enough, he knew that you and I, before we were even born, would be unrighteous sinners in need of a Savior. That the best of our good works are nothing but a filthy rag before the Lord. That we are sinful people who willingly choose sin, who choose to reject the goodness of God in every aspect of our lives. And before the creation of the heavens and the earth, before God spoke in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus willingly chose to embrace his role as redeemer of the universe. He willingly chose to come down as a perfect innocent child, to walk this earth for 30 plus years as a perfect holy man, This mingling of God and humanity and flesh walking amongst us, fulfilling prophecy after prophecy. And he chose to come to this very moment in time, sitting upon a virgin colt on this ridge overlooking the city of Jerusalem 
recognizing that this is the moment that he was born for. That he was come to seek and save the lost. And so at the end of this passage, we see Jesus descend. He moves down into the city so that he could be amongst those who are sinners, who are tax collectors, who are prostitutes, who have rejected the goodness of God, those who would come to crucify and condemn him, and that he could mingle among them, proclaiming the coming resurrection, proclaiming the hope that is found through the gospel of Jesus. That we are sinners, that we are condemned by our sin, but God, being rich in mercy, with a great love with which he loved us, sent Jesus to pay for the sin of you and I, so that we may have life eternal with him. You see, this is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. We celebrate these tears of mercy, these tears that bore the weight of our sin and shame, these tears of a Savior who loves and cares for each one of us, the tears of a Savior who weeps for the spiritual condition of you and I. And on this Palm Sunday, as we celebrate this holiest of holy weeks, we have an opportunity to celebrate the holiest of saviors. In fact, he is the only savior. And his name is Jesus. And here in the next few minutes, as our worship team comes forth to lead us in a time of worship, of celebrating his majesty, you and I have an opportunity to respond to this holy savior. You and I have an opportunity to cry out in praise, rejoicing in the goodness of a God who would come to seek and save the lost. We have an opportunity to cry out in praise, celebrating our redemption. And it begins with us humbling ourselves before the sovereign ruler of all the universe and proclaiming that you are greater that you are a holy God who loves an unholy person and that forgiveness is available should we cry out to him. In the next few moments, we'll go into a time of silent prayer where you individually at your spot can commune with God. You can cry out to him. And I want to be very clear that God does not want to hear anything else you have to say unless it is you crying out to him for forgiveness. You see, we see in Scripture that God has one prayer that he always listens to if you're not a believer, and that is a prayer that you're crying out for salvation. It actually tells us in the Old Testament that he turns his ear away if you're a non-believer, because all he wants to hear is that you recognize your need of salvation. And if you're a believer here, there are many things you could go to the Father for. But what I would submit to you that we need to do today is to be captured by the beauty and majesty of our Savior on a rise 2,000 years ago, weeping for His people. Our Savior mourning over His people. That we should be captivated by that image of a God who loves us so much 
that he would weep for those who would reject him and crucify him. That he would weep over you and I. And let us pray that we would be captured by that image this week. As we go to what is the most important moment in the life of the church. The cross. That if there is no cross, there is no Christianity. Then we celebrate the second most important moment. The resurrection of Christ. That because of his resurrection, we know that we have life eternal with him. So in this time, you have opportunity to pray silently before the Lord. I'll give you that space and then I'll close us with a time of prayer. And then we'll together rise and we'll sing the glories of God and his praises. If during that time you desire prayer, you need counsel, you just need encouragement. Please come see myself or Pastor Brian. We want to pray for you. We want to go before the Lord on your behalf. And we want to see God move in your life. So if you would, could we together silently go to the Lord in prayer? Would you bow your heads? Father, what a gift you have given us in Jesus. What a tender mercy you have displayed towards a lost and dying people that you would send your son, Jesus, to bear the weight of our sin and shame. That he would come into this world not to condemn it, but to save it. Father, a love like that we cannot even imagine. Yet you, Lord, willingly chose to come to us. You chose to bear our weight of sin and shame. You chose to do this even though you knew we would reject you. Yet you came. You came because your purpose has been from day one to bring those who are in your creation, your people together to worship you and rejoice in the beauty of that relationship we have with you. That we've been created to rejoice and make much of our Savior. And Lord, when we trust in Jesus and repent of our sins, things are made right in the world and in us. So Lord, I pray that here as people who are listening in this room or online, may you convict people of their sin. May you show them that they are lost that they have not repented, and that they are in desperate need of a Savior. Show them that they are on a path to hell and separation from you, Lord. And would you pluck them from that path? Bring them to yourself. Bring them into your family.
and shower your forgiveness upon them. Lord, would we cry out together in repentance of our sin with humility that our Savior would condescend Himself to walk among us and pay for our debt of sin. Lord, this is a love that we can't even fathom. But it's one that brings hope, that brings restoration, that brings peace. And Lord, I pray that in the midst of feeling those things, of resting in those truths, that we would make much of you through crying out in praise of the one who has come to seek and save the lost. The one who has come to cancel death and bring life. The one who has come to restore his people to himself. So Father, in the next few minutes, may we sing clearly with words and sounds of praise, proclaiming the majesty of our Savior, proclaiming the beauty of the gospel, proclaiming our forgiveness that has been found in Christ. Lord, we're grateful for you, and we're grateful for the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.